so delighted to see you here and worship with us here on this uh, beautiful Sunday morning. Please take your Bibles and open to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, we've been three weeks in Jesus' high priestly prayer where he goes and intercedes to the Father on our behalf right before he is arrested and he's going to the cross. So, um, we find Jesus with his disciples. They've just had the final, um, they've just had their final Passover meal at the end of Passion Week. He has uh, instituted the Lord's Supper. He's washed their feet. And now he prays over his disciples before they head out across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives where he will be arrested. And then that night they will have an illegal trial. They will find him guilty of blasphemy. And then they will execute Jesus. So these are Jesus' last few moments with his disciples. And this is famously called the high priestly prayer. As I've said each week, this is probably the most important chapter in all of John. And some even call it the holy of holies of the scripture. This is where we get to see Jesus, the very son of God, pleading with his father, preparing himself and his disciples for the cross. As I mentioned just a minute ago, in a few short hours, Jesus will give his life for the life of the world. He will bear the eternal wrath of God for our sin in our place. The Father will treat Jesus as we should have been treated. He who knew no sin will be treated as though he had committed every sin so that his righteousness would be accounted to us. And so Jesus, with the weight of that looming over Jesus, with all of that in view, he prays to the Father for what is most important. Now the high priestly prayer is broken into three sections. Jesus begins by praying for himself. This is going to be a very large undertaking. This is, Jesus has known this has been the entire mission. He's going to go to the cross for the world. And then in the second section, he prays for his disciples to prepare them for their mission. Because ultimately, they will continue what Jesus has done. They will be sent just as Jesus has been sent. And today, we're going to look at how Jesus concludes as he prays for the future church. Now, that means today, this is Jesus' prayer for us. Some 2,000 years later... This is Jesus praying for those that would become his disciples into eternity. So, let's read together. I'm going to start in verse 20. This is what, how Jesus ends this prayer. He says there, I do not ask for these only, referring to the disciples that are in the room with him. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire 
that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. I want to give you three things that Jesus prays for here as we walk through this text and hopefully tell you why this matters even today and into the future. First, notice that Jesus prays for the unity of the church. Jesus begins by praying for the unity of the future church. Now there, if you look at verses 20 through 22, there are three basic unities for which Jesus prays. Three basic unities. So if you're writing them down, here they are. The first one is gospel unity. Gospel unity. If you look there in verse 20, Jesus says this. He says that I am praying for those who will believe in me through their word. I am praying for those who will believe in me through their word. At this moment, picture Jesus praying. He is looking here into the future. He is seeing myriads of myriads of those who will hear the gospel, who will follow him from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Verse 20 here is the precursor to the great commission that will be given. Jesus prays for those that will hear the gospel through these disciples. Jesus is going to the cross, he's going to die, rise again, and then he's going to commission his disciples to fulfill this very prayer. That's what's going to happen. The future church will be a church that hears the gospel through the word of the apostles. John Stott, one of my favorite theologians, he says about verse 20, he says, quote, he says, this is first and foremost a prayer that there will be historical continuity between the church of the first century and the church of subsequent centuries. That the church's faith may not change, but remain recognizably the same. That the church of every age may merit the title apostolic because it is loyal to the teaching of the apostles. It's the same gospel in every age. The same gospel that was given from Jesus to the apostles and that would be transmitted from these apostles to future believers. Gospel unity. Those that hear the gospel in the future from these disciples will be united together as believers in Christ. One in Christ. It is the same historical unchanging gospel of Christ that must form the unity among future worldwide believers. Now that's a huge statement. Let me say that again in case you missed it. It is the same historical unchanging gospel of Christ that will form the foundation for unity among future worldwide believers. There are Christians today, 2,000 plus years later, because these disciples in this room obeyed Christ's command to take this same gospel to the nations. Gospel unity. Second, 
spiritual unity. Look in verse 21. Jesus says, I pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Follow the language. To come to Jesus is to come into a relationship with the Father. Even more than that, it is to come into fellowship with the very Godhead. Jesus is going to pour out His Spirit that every believer will be indwelled with His Spirit so that we can be united and baptized into the same Spirit, indwelled by the same Spirit. We are united to one another, Jesus says. We are to be united to one another just as we are, just as we are united to the Father, Son, and Spirit. And this spiritual unity, by the way, is eternity, is eternal. We will spend eternity together as brothers and sisters, a unity that goes so much deeper than any identity that our world seeks to bolster. Spiritual unity. Unity that has nothing to do with what color our skin is. It has nothing to do with how much money we have. It has nothing to do with our education. It has nothing to do with our political affiliation. It has nothing to do with the town we grew up in. It has nothing to do with any of those things by which this world would seek to divide us. This is a unity that goes into the very heart of the Godhead. That says that I am in Jesus and Jesus is in me and you are in Jesus and Jesus is in you. And we are united spiritually together in a bond that cannot be breaking, broken for all of eternity. Spiritual unity. But there's also missional unity. There's gospel unity. There's spiritual unity. But there's also missional unity. Look at verse 22. He says that this unity results in something. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. That this spiritual unity, this gospel unity, leads to this. Gospel unity, spiritual unity are meant to lead to missional unity. We are united so that the world may also believe something. They may also believe the gospel that the Father has sent Jesus. Make that connection. Right? The Father sent Jesus... And in verse 18, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. We go united in the gospel, united in the spirit, and united in our mission. This is the unity that Jesus is speaking about here. Now, let me say this. This unity does not mean we agree on everything. It's not what Jesus said, is it? I pray that they may agree on every single thing that I've ever said. I don't think that's what Jesus said. I think Jesus said there's three basic kinds of unity here. Okay? So, this unity doesn't mean we agree on everything as believers. This is not uniformity of every thought or idea. We can all differ on our ideas of baptism or on communion or of church government. And those things, by the way, are very important and the Bible says a lot about it. And we should have some relative unity about it but not essential unity, like this is a gospel issue. We can disagree on issues like the end times and on predestination. We can disagree on politics, on immigration, on how to parse out and nuance the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But as believers, 
Christ is praying that we agree on what is of paramount importance. Everything else is secondary to what is primary. Do you understand? There are things of primary importance, and then there are other things that can be important, but they're not essential. Essential unity here with Christ is this. We find unity and oneness in Christ in our spiritual union with Him, in our unity in taking the gospel to the nations. That is what we should agree on. This is why we can and should cooperate with different churches because the goal is not uniformity of practice on every issue. Our cooperation among other churches exists so that the ever-changing world can hear the never-changing gospel. That's the point. So I don't need to agree with everything that goes on in a sister church down the street. I just need to know, do you believe the gospel? Are you a spiritual brother and sister in Jesus, filled with the same spirit? And do you care that lost people hear the gospel? If you can get behind that, we can shake hands, lock arms, and we can march towards hell together. And that's, what, that's what's needed, and that's what Jesus prays for. And I'll just say that's why we as Southern Baptists try to cooperate in missions, not in everything being in agreement. If you expect everybody to agree with you on everything, you're going to be a very lonely Christian. Because let me tell you, I don't even agree with myself half the time. I mean, if you get, you get two Christians in a room, you're going to have a lot of disagreement. But we should agree on Jesus, on the gospel, and on our mission. Those things cannot be Cannot, those things are of paramount importance. So Jesus prays for the unity of the church. Second, Jesus prays for the glory of the church. The glory of the church. Look there in verses 22 through 23. Jesus prays there for the glory of the church. Let me read that to you. He says there, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you've sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Now, I've read many commentators this week and no one is really sure what to make of Christ's petition here in verse 22. They don't really know what Jesus means by glory, that I've given them glory. Okay. Now, what they do agree on is that whatever this glory is, it is something that Jesus gives the church and not something that we can produce on our own. It's something that the Father gave to Jesus, and Jesus gives to the church. So, the question is, what is Jesus really getting at? What glory has the Father given to Jesus that He in turn gives to us as the church? Now, I'm going to make a New Testament argument, okay? So, when we, the author John, who wrote this, the author John has used the term glory in several places um, in this gospel, going back all the way to chapter 1. And when we look at glory, how John uses it, and how the rest of some New Testament authors use it, I think we can get a glimpse of possibly what Jesus is hinting at. Okay, And by the way, if, if there's a bunch of commentators and they can't agree and they're willing to be wrong, then I'm just as willing to be wrong as anybody. So, here, I think there are four glories here that I want to point out. Four, Okay. What does Jesus mean with the Father has given me glory and I've shared it with the church and it's not something the church can drum up in and of themselves, but it's something that Jesus gives. And I think there are four, according to the New Testament. First, 
is the glory of grace and truth. The glory of grace and truth. If you were to go back to John chapter 1, it says this. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. And we have seen His glory. Glory as, as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And he says, from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. He says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Do you see that? He came to reveal the glory of grace and truth, and we've received it. That's what John says in John 1, right? So Jesus comes to us from the Father, according to John, to reveal the fullness of grace and truth. He comes to share with us the glory of grace and truth, the full measure of both. You cannot divide Jesus 50% grace, 50% truth. He is fully grace, fully truth, and he's revealed that to us and shared it with us. So that's the first glory, the glory of grace and truth. Second is the glory of humility and suffering. The glory of humility and suffering. Is that not the glory of the cross? Is that not the entire mission? The glory of the cross? This is where Jesus is going in just a few short hours, right? Jesus came teaching something. He came teaching that to know Him and follow Him, you have to deny yourself, humble yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus comes to share with us the upside-down glory of humility and suffering. Those are not things the world prizes. That's not the glory of the world. That's pride and shiny things. Jesus says that His glory is the glory of a servant. The glory of one who gives Himself for the good of others. In Christ's glorious kingdom, what do we learn? The first will be last, and the last will be first. The greatest of all must be what? The servant of all. That the uh, Philippians chapter 2 makes it clear that the path to joy and exaltation before Jesus was the path of humility and suffering. Jesus came teaching us that the, these present sufferings in this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us as the children of God. You see that? When is that glory going to be revealed? Well, the glory is going to be revealed in the future, but what do you have to go through first? Humility and suffering. That's not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. So, this, think about this. This little band of disciples starts really small. It's just 11 of them. And they go turn the world upside down through their travail and through their sufferings. But because of it, because they are like Jesus and they follow Him on the road to Calvary, the nations will be glad and sing for joy. Their suffering will bring gladness to the nations. You're a Christian today because they suffered and brought the gospel. There will be, there will be a cross before there's a crown. So the second is the glory of humility and suffering. Third, the glory of knowing Jesus and the Father. The glory of knowing Jesus. You see that in verses 22 and 23. Jesus prays at the end of verse 22. He says that they may become one even as we are one. 
I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me. Notice that this is the glory of knowing the Father and being in relationship with Him and the Son. That's the glory. That is what's going on here. It's the glory of knowing the Father and being in relationship with Him. Jesus says, I in them, I'm in my disciples, and you are in me. Think about it. Just as the Father and Son share a glorious, loving relationship, Jesus extends that relationship to us. That's been a key teaching of His ministry, has it not? Jesus has come to reveal the Father to us and make Him known. Go back to John 1. He says there in John 1.18, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. Jesus has made the Father known. This is why Jesus has come. He tells Thomas back in chapter 14, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then he goes on to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The glorious and mysterious truth is that we can, as creatures, enter into a relationship with the Creator. That is the glory that Jesus has shared with the church. That through Him, you can come into a relationship with the Father. And the fourth glory is love. The fourth glory is love. Look at verse 23 at the end. This is mind-blowing. You should underline this and just think about this the rest of this week. In fact, you'll think about this the rest of eternity. Look at what verse 23. This is one of the most astounding verses in the entire Bible. Jesus says, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. You loved them, future disciples who've heard the gospel and become believers, the church, you loved them as you have loved me. Ponder that for a second. The Father loves you in the same way He loves His Son. Now folks, there are some times that preachers don't have words. Very, very rare times. This is one of those times. It sounds blasphemous. It sounds unbelievable. It sounds crazy. Jesus, you've said a lot of crazy things, but this might be, this is the one that takes the cake. This is what it says, though. We are invited into the very love that the Father has for the Son. Is that not glorious? Is that not mind-blowing? Listen, now let me tell you what this means for a church. These are the glories that the Father has shared with Jesus and He shared with His church. This is what Jesus prays for, for His church. The glory of the church is not its programming. The glory of the church is not the size of its budget. The glory of the church 
is not its political influence or clout. The glory of the church involves how well it reveals and reflects Jesus into the world. That's the glory of the church. Why? Because Jesus is the glory of the church. It's Jesus. He must be the blazing center of all that a church is and does. So here's the question. Does our church display the glory of grace and truth found in Jesus? Is there a full display here of God's truth through His Word, but also a full display of God's grace for sinners and strugglers? Does it go both ways? Is there a display here to the world of the glory of humility and suffering? Or do we love our comfort too much to actually suffer and struggle some? Do we see suffering and humility as part of our glory? It was the glory of Jesus. Do we walk together with Jesus on the road to Calvary and bear our cross and serve others selflessly and sacrificially? Do we display to the world the glory of being in a relationship with Jesus and the Father as ultimately marked by love? When people come into our congregation, do they go, see how they love each other? It can only be explained by the love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father and they both have for His people. A love that demands an explanation. A love that leads to something. It leads to others coming to know that Jesus is really the Savior and the Son of God who has been sent by the Father. After all, it's Jesus who said, they will know you why. By, they will know you're my disciples. Why? By your love one for another. One commentator said this. Oh, this is so good. It's challenging. He said, the biggest barriers to effective evangelism according to the prayer of Jesus are not so much outdated methods or inadequate presentations of the gospel as it is realities like gossip, insensitivity, negative criticism, jealousy, backbiting, an unforgiving spirit, a root of bitterness, and a failure to appreciate others, a preoccupation of the self, greed, selfishness, and every other form of lovelessness. What hinders our ability to fulfill Jesus' mission? It's not programming. It's our ability to love one another as Jesus has loved us. That is the ultimate apologetic to a watching world. Do they love? And finally, Jesus prays for the future of the church. Jesus prays for the unity of the church, for the glory of the church, and for the future of the church. Look at verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Focus on that text. Jesus asked the Father to bring those that He has given Him into His presence so they can be where He is. That's the request. Father, those that You've given me, I want them to be where I am. I want them to be where I am. Jesus desires it. He yearns for it, he longs for it, and he asks for it. He asks to spend eternity with those who belong to him. Jesus desires their presence personally with him. He asks the Father for it. 
And the Father will answer his prayer. The Father always does what the Son asks. And by the way, if you've never known this in your Bibles, you find a similar prayer back in Psalm 2. If you were to go to Psalm 2, you will see a conversation between the Father and the pre-incarnate Son of God. And this is what it says there. In Psalm 2, the Father says this, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The Father says to the Son, ask of me, and I'll give you the nations. Just ask, Son. I'll give you the uttermost parts of the world as your possession. And here in John 17, what does Jesus do? Father, I ask for them. Father, I ask that those that you've given me out of all the nations will be mine, and they'll be where I am. I ask for them. That's what Jesus does. The Father says to ask, and He will give Jesus the nation, so Jesus does. And from here, Jesus sends out His church to the ends of the earth so that people can forever be with Him in His presence. Every Christian who shares the gospel with others is a participant in the Father's answer to the Son's prayer. You are part of the answer to Jesus' request here. You participate in the eternal purposes of God for the glory of His Son. As you go and share the gospel with other people. So in Psalm 2, before the world even was created, the Father says, ask. The Son asks. The Son comes. And then you go to Revelation chapter 5, to the ends of all times. And this is what you read in chapter 5. It gives us a glimpse into the glorious answer to this prayer of Jesus. Tune in, folks. This will blow your mind. It says in Revelation 5, this is what John sees at the end of all time. He says, and they sang a new song. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then look at this. He says, then I looked And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What what does John see? What does John see in Revelation 5? Well, let me tell you. He sees all of these here who have heard the gospel through the word of the disciples in John 17, 20. He sees every believer from all of history. He sees the universal church from all time. He sees every believer from every nation and tribe and tongue. He sees me. He sees me there worshiping Jesus before his throne. And if you belong to Jesus, you know who else he sees? He sees you. And 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 he sees you. That's what John sees. We are there. John sees us, just not yet in our time or experience. He saw this 2,000 years ago on the Isle of Patmos. And the question is, 
And the question is, will anyone be there that day because they heard the gospel through your word? Will anyone be there that day because you obeyed Christ's command to share the good news of the gospel? Listen, but Jesus doesn't simply want us to be in his presence. If you look there at the end of that, he doesn't just ask that you would, see his, that you would be in his presence. He asks that you would see and experience something. He wants us to see and behold his glory forever. He says that they may be with me where I am, that they may see the glory that I had before the world was ever created. That you can see the glory of God. That you would see Jesus. Jesus wants to satisfy our hearts and minds and souls for eternity with his glory. To see it, to savor it, to bask in it, to enjoy it, and to delight in it forever. With ever-increasing brilliance and joy to satisfy us in a way that only Jesus himself can. And by the way, I say this all the time, that's why heaven isn't really about mansions or about streets of gold. Just give me Jesus and it will be enough. It will be enough. If I get to see him, nothing else will matter for eternity. So as I close, did Jesus pray for you here? Did John see you in Revelation 5 around the throne? Will you get to be in the presence of Jesus forever? This only happens by repentance and faith. By coming to Christ by faith. By turning from your own pride, your own sin, your own rebellion. And turning to Jesus as Lord. Do you know Jesus? Not, are you a good person? Not, do you always do the right thing? Hell's filled with good people, folks. There's nobody good in heaven. Just sinners who deserve nothing but God's judgment, saved by grace. Have you experienced grace? Jesus came full of grace and truth. Lastly, do you have a church home? Are you willing? Jesus prayed for a church. A church. Not just First Baptist, but the entire universal church. Do you belong to the people for which Jesus prayed and came to belong? Came to, came to rescue? Do you have a church home? And finally, are you committed to Christ's mission? Is there gospel unity? Is there spiritual unity? And is there missionary unity? May the Lord add a blessing to the preaching of his word. Father, we pray today that you would speak to our hearts. And I pray specifically for those in this room that are not sure about their salvation. Father, they're not sure if Jesus, they're not sure if Jesus was praying for them. They're not sure that they were around that throne in Revelation 5. But Father, today they can settle that. Father, today they can find life in the name of Jesus. So I pray today they would set aside pride. They set aside whatever anyone thinks. They set aside anything that they think really matters other than Jesus. And Father, they would come and say, I just need Jesus. And Father, we know that for all those that seek him, they will be found by him. So Father, I pray that you would speak and move now for Christ's sake.